Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST, that's G-I-S-T, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. It's Wednesday, June 18th, 2014. From Slate, it's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. The Bitcoin Bowl. There will now be a college bowl game called the Bitcoin Bowl. I suppose imaginary currency is in keeping with the NCAA athlete remuneration policy, but Bitcoin, it's not just for buying blow anymore. Bitcoin is now a bowl. Sadly, this ends the former name of the bowl. It used to be the Beefo Brady Bowl. Every generation gets the ridiculous bowl name it deserves. For a time, that was the Pulan Weed Eater Bowl. Then, when the jungle ate up Pulan Weed Eaters, Beef O'Brady came along to sponsor this St. Petersburg, Florida-based bowl. I once ate at a Beef O'Brady. It is chronicled in my old MySpace page called Poor Choices. Be it hosting the Ball State Cardinals, the Ohio Bobcats, or the Florida International University Golden Panthers, and those were the last three losers of the Beef O'Brady Bowl, the Beef O'Brady Bowl was always good for an easy laugh, and against the Bobcats' defense, an easy pass. It was the Cat Fancy Magazine of Bowls. It was the Englishman who went up a hill and came down a mountain of bowls. It was the Legend of the Guardians, the Owls of Gahul of Bowls. We all have our proper noun punchlines, and Beef O'Brady's was it for bowls. Will the Bitcoin bowl serve that purpose? I think not. Oh, I think there will be jokes. Halftime announcement at the Bitcoin bowl. Um, your attention, your attention, please. Unfortunately, the organizers of the Bitcoin Bowl have lost the score. We're really sorry. The score was in a wallet. But now we're going to start at 0-0. That should in no way shake your faith in Bitcoin. But, you know, that's a Bitcoin-specific joke. It's not, what the hell random name of a bowl is this joke? And that's what we need from our bowls. So with that in mind, I call on you, Shake Weight. I call on you, Rainbow Loom, Hobby Lobby, Jamba Juice. Get in the game. Get in the bowl game. The Le Pan Quotidian Bowl. It's a 35-7 blowout between the fourth best team in Conference USA and the University of Akron. It's just waiting to happen. In the spiel today, we'll do the numbers. I'll talk about numbers. Before that, Maria Konnikova will be in. Lovely person will be talking about the ugly comments that often arise on the internet. But now, the lawyers for General Motors, were they acting ethically?
Mary Barra, the CEO of General Motors, testified before the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Capitol Hill today, once again answering lawmakers' questions about why recalls didn't happen, recalls in GM vehicles that could have saved 13 lives at least. Well, it sounds like the OGM culture was mostly, let's don't talk about a problem. We are creating a culture. I have uh, evidence of it every day. A major internal investigation released earlier this month showed the top execs at GM didn't realize the scope of the problems. But read a little into that report, and it's easy to come to the conclusion that executives not knowing was a strategy on the part of some of GM's lawyers. Joining me now to discuss the role and ethics of corporate lawyers, especially in this case, is Georgetown Law Professor David Lubon. Hello, Professor Lubon. Uh, hello. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So the legal department of GM seems to have operated. It wasn't even compartmentalized. They were selled or walled off from each other. Lawyers advised against note-taking at meetings. They supervised a purge of certain employee emails. And lawyers kept sensitive information from their own boss, GM's lead counsel. And the result was not a cover-up. But does it seem to you that there was something of, I guess, a pre-cover-up? Yeah, I mean, there's something very fishy, a little bit stupid, and uh, possibly unethical about what the lawyers did. Um, the, the real problem is that the lawyers who are handling products liability lawsuits are desperately afraid of having smoking gun evidence in the files. So their primary concern is just thinking about the lawsuits. So. Uh, Let's settle the lawsuit if we can. Let's figure out what lawsuits can be tried and which lawsuits can't. But the question about um, should we be recalling these cars and doing something proactive to stop future accidents seems to have fallen out of their horizon. That's what I meant when I said that there's something a little bit stupid about what they're doing because they're not taking the big perspective, even from the point of view of the company's self-interest. Right. So, the, for instance, um, GM had an internal rule that lawsuits settled for $5 million or less. You wouldn't have to notify the lead counsel. It was Michael Milliken. And so they were, and they settled some cases for exactly that amount. And Milliken at least was able to say, and maybe it's true, it doesn't seem to be untrue, that he never even knew about these lawsuits. But in whose interest is that? The lawyers are thinking about the interests of the case that they're on and not the interests of the company as a whole. So that's already a mistake. But I think that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it's also an ethical problem from the point of view of uh, people are going to get killed if this problem isn't fixed. Are some of these practices common in corporate law? Well, you know, it's hard to tell how common they are because, of course, everything is cloaked within the shield of confidentiality. I mean, the thing that comes to mind right away, the famous Ford Pinto cases from the late 70s and early 80s where uh, there were Ford Pintos put on the road that would explode at low-speed rear-end collisions, and the company just covered it up for years basically because they were racing to bring the car to market and they didn't want to stop the business from going forward. And the result was that a lot of people died. There was a big scandal when it turned out that the companies um, had been talking about, uh, here's how much we would have to pay in lawsuits to settle this, uh, and maybe that would be cheaper than recalling the cars. 
you can think of the same thing. Um, this has nothing to do with automakers. In the Challenger disaster, when the space shuttle exploded, the government investigation found that there was so much political pressure going to keep the shuttle launches on schedule that engineers' warnings were getting lost. I think it's just a very common thing in bureaucratic organizations for people to say, you know, I don't know, I don't want to know, and uh, we don't want to do anything that would make us stop going forward. Right, but do you think this fractured knowledge, is it an unfortunate side effect of the culture, or is it a conscious strategy, or at least a necessary consequence of forethought, uh, a strategy that was put in place for a specific reason? Well, I think it could happen either way. I mean, it's, it, it, I don't think we know enough about GM right now to know how conscious it was. I mean, it did seem as if there was a conscious strategy to make sure that there wasn't damaging information in the files. And it might be that the fragmented knowledge is kind of collateral damage from the strategy to keep the files pristine. Yeah, and what about not taking notes in meetings? Is that common? Should that have raised ethical red flags? Uh, I certainly think that it should have. You know, there's a, a concept in law that's called a willful blindness, and it, it means deliberately screening your eyes from damaging information so that you can say, I didn't know. It's a, it's a kind of criminal defense, but it's also a moral defense. It's covering up my eyes, covering up my ears. Uh, when the lawyers have, discourage employees from taking notes, it's also a way of keeping the organization as a whole from knowing what's going on in the organization, just purely as a liability screening device. It's partly it's like the, the ostrich putting its head in the sand, but it also might be the fox trying to figure out a way to uh, um, be able to say truthfully, I didn't know. So Michael Milliken, who is the chief counsel for Jim, was not fired because he didn't know of the problems. That was documented in that report. But shouldn't that sentence read, he was fired because he didn't know of the problems? It does seem to be an inversion of what a chief counsel's responsibility is. We would have to know what kind of uh, culture he had set up in the legal department. I mean, if he, you, know, you could tell two versions of this story. One was that he was let down or even betrayed by some of his subordinates, that he wasn't being willfully blind. I mean, there's another version of the story in which uh, there were signals communicated saying, uh, keep the guilty knowledge away from me. And I don't think we know enough right now to be able to say what the, you know, which version of that story is true. All right. Is there anything else that's important to know about this case or anything that you've thought of that you think uh, would be worth mentioning? Just that it seems like a classic example of a legal bureaucratic uh, misfunction. Something famous that St. Augustine wrote in his confessions when he said, uh, Lord, uh, spare me from temptation, but not yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we always have this sense of um, we want to take the high road. We don't want to be morally forced to. You know, a situation where I'm deliberately trying to screen myself from guilty knowledge, screen the... The organization from guilty knowledge, I think, is in exactly that same kind of gray zone. There's a distant sense of knowing that something's wrong, but there's also a desire to be the ostrich that puts your head in the sand. And I think that's a real troubling phenomenon. David Lubin is professor of law and philosophy at Georgetown University. Thank you so much, Professor. 
Well, it's a pleasure to talk with you. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com slash gist. Enter offer code gist at checkout. So, Squarespace, couple things to recommend it. Really beautiful. It's simple. It's easy. It's, I don't want to, I don't want to be precious or highfalutin, but it's kind of the high end of web designers. You maybe have heard of the other web designers. Those would maybe be the El Camino of web designers. This is more of the Cadillac Escalade of web designers, really more of a Prius of web designers. And you'll know why I say that when I tell you that they offer 24-7 support through live chat and email. Plans start at $8 a month and include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. And when you do decide to sign up for Squarespace, again, use the offer code, the gist, to get 10% off your first purchase. And of course, also shows support for the gist. Thank you, Squarespace, for supporting the show. Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. I'm reading the daily news today trying to find the most anodyne article just to demonstrate this point. Virginia mom furious after stranger turned Instagram photo of her children into meme. This is definitely an article for the Daily News reader who's like scared of the internet. This lady posts a photo on Instagram, has uh, her son who's eight, two two-year-old daughters, and then someone just started putting stupid captions on him. Not like horribly insulting, but insinuating that my son is selling cars because he has a suit on and two little girls. This woman does a press conference. She's in Virginia. I have no idea why the Daily News even thinks it's a story. So here are the comments, right? Here are the comments. How quickly does this devolve into chaos? Robin says, those kids are adorable. It just goes to show how much people have lost their humanity when you take an innocent photo of siblings or any kids and turn it into a cruel meme. Marlon says, lost their humanity? Lighten up, it's a joke. Santi says, let's see you take that same position when someone takes one of your photos and turns it into a nasty meme. Joey says, not all of us would be moronic enough to post photos of our families with no restrictions and then expect the random world public to just love them for no reason grow up. Vember says, oh yeah, Joey, blame the victim. Only an imbecile would think that way. Unicomp says, screw you, racist pig. Well, there you go. Internet comments, aren't they great? Joining me now is Maria Konnikova. The comment section on her last appearance were really quite nice, but that, I think, is an exception because Maria comes on, plays a little game we call Is That Bullshit? She studies science, and she knows a little bit about internet comments. Hello, Maria. Hello, Mike. A year ago for The New Yorker, you wrote about how popular science pulled the plug on comments, saying mm-hmm. they were not worth it. Was popular science thinking at the time? Well, they were reacting to one study from the University of Wisconsin at Madison that showed that having comments and having negative comments really detracted your experience of the article. The article itself. Of the Redounded ar- back to the very mm-hmm, article. Exactly. So what was that, what was that study showing? Um, so that study was showing in a very isolated fashion that if you have the same article, exactly the same, and one has substantive nice comments and the other says only an idiot would believe crap like this, the first version of the article is going to be perceived 
as much more scientific, as much more persuasive, as much better. And the second one is going to be dismissed because of the comments. So then when you have to answer questions about the content of the article itself, you're going to be swayed because you see that you'd be an idiot <laughs> if yeah. you believed otherwise. So, okay, so I could see why popular science saw that study and thought that comments, bad comments, are not just useless in and of themselves, they're hurting our product. So was it a sound move to remove comments for that reason, do you think? I don't think so, because that study was really isolated. It wasn't like a study that was published on Slate, where you had two different types of comments. This was just a standalone article with no norms, nothing that accompanied the publication. And in the real world, that's not really how comments work. You know, if you're commenting on an article for the New York Times, there's a different sort of norm than if you're commenting on an article for the Daily Mail or for Gawker. So is there a good body of thought on anonymous versus anonymous to to get better comments? I know I have some thought on <laughs> Well, it's really complicated because on the one hand, and this was my initial gut instinct when I was uh, doing this, anonymity is very disinhibiting. And so yeah. you will say a lot of crap that you wouldn't otherwise say. You know, I might not call you an idiot to your face, but then if oh, I go... I've and, seen you posting a yeah. science gal 438. I have. I have. You knew it was me. It wasn't that anonymous. <laughs> but... You know, as Science Gal 438, I can go on Slate and post something really nasty and feel, ah, that's totally fine. I got it out and no one ever knows. There are no repercussions. But it's not that clear cut. There's also some work that shows that anonymity can be really good because on the one hand, you have protection. So I can also comment, you know, there was the story about General Motors, for instance, that broke today. If I'm a General Motors employee, I could comment anonymously and say a lot of these things without fearing I was going to be losing my job, which I couldn't otherwise do. And studies have shown that there is this freeing effect. It's more nuanced than just anonymity equals bad. Right. Although I have to say that um, on Hang Up and Listen, my uh, sports show, we have a Facebook page and the comments are great. And when I worked for NPR, it was all anonymous comments. And you would think that the people who would comment on NPR would be, you know, not the most vile uh, form of scum. And yet the comments just, I mean, were just so unhinged quite often. I'm a big believer in what would be the opposite of anonymous, non-anonymous, named comments. Put your name to that comment. There is work that shows that that does well. And eponymous comments, you know, where you have kind of an identity that's your online identity and it's right. not your actual name, but you have, you know, pseudo-anonymity popular science, other than the fact that they were motivated by a study that wasn't so great, what else is lost if they do away with comments, well, I th do you think? I think that two things happen. One, the comments just move elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So it's not like people stop commenting. And you might have people then deriding popular science for the fact that they can't comment and that it becomes so much more difficult that you then have to take to Twitter or Facebook or whatnot. But it also changes your reading experience because you don't feel like you have a stake in what you're reading. If there are no comments, well, why do I have to process this intelligently so that I can comment and offer my opinion? I don't know. I read Middle March and there was no comment section there. And I had a pretty, like all of literature prior to 1996 <laughs> or whatever would fall into that category. All right. So let's play our game. I think there might be a couple of ways to do this. But first, I'll ask you it this way. Is this bullshit? Here's the premise. Left to their own devices, internet comments will trend towards nastiness. Is that bullshit? No, that's not bullshit. All right. Well, how about this? Thinking about it this way. 
nasty comments detract from an article's value. Is that bullshit? Um, yes, that is bullshit. It's too simplistic. All right. Maria Konnikova writes for The New Yorker. And uh, is there, are there are comments open after your articles on The New Yorker? They are. Yeah, yeah. Comments are open. Comments Comment, are open. Comments is free. <laughs> and you could comment on this, on Slate. But to be honest with you, I don't read those comments that much. I'd like to, but... I don't read comments. Yeah. And when I do, I'm always very depressed. I'm not always very depressed. I, I've learned how to process them where it's like, oh, that's just so irrelevant. You know, I think a lot of people get upset when someone is you know, mean or stupid or racist. But to me, I find it helpful. I think Obama said this about Donald Sterling. It's kind of a helpful shortcut when someone like displays such ignorance. You're like, oh, well, Mm -hmm. I don't have to take them seriously. Right. And we didn't even play the Hitler game. We didn't play the Hitler game. And now the spiel, the Ukrainian gas crisis. Actually, situation. Let's call it the Ukrainian gas situation, right? When there's an actual shooting war and separatists have downed a military plane and all 49 people aboard die. That's a crisis. So the Ukrainian gas situation, though, is tied to that crisis. Yesterday, a pipeline exploded. No one knows the cause. But the overweening problem for Ukraine is paying for its gas, gas it gets from Russia. Russia is raising the prices it charges. Essentially, Ukraine was getting a friends and family rate when Russia's man was ensconced in Kiev. Now Ukraine has to pay market rate, and it also has to pay its bill, which, if we're being honest, Ukraine can't do. Since I follow Ukraine, I happen to know a lot of these numbers. Ukraine produces half its gas domestically and imports half from Russia. Russia has doubled the prices. The real numbers are Ukraine consumed 50.4 billion cubic meters of gas in 2013. 21 billion cubic meters was produced domestically, so that's less than half. Ukraine currently has about 13.5 billion cubic meters of gas in underground tanks. Ukraine owes Russia $1.95 billion for the gas it's already bought. The amount of gas, that cubic meter total, that's meaningless. It doesn't really matter. It's one of those size of Belgium type statements. But $1.95 billion, let's go ahead and round this up to $2 billion. So the GDP of Ukraine is $175 billion. It's predicted to shrink. But remember, GDP is everything made in the country. It's not the budget. The government's budget is $66 billion. So $2 billion out of $66 billion, that's like 3% of the budget. 3% of the USA's budget is over $100 billion. So that's the total budget of, say, the Department of Transportation. Imagine if every federal highway improvement, the FAA, the NTSB, all those federal highway road repairs, take all that money and put it towards not doing that work, but paying a bill. That's the equivalent of what Ukraine owes Russia. And Ukraine can't afford to pay that. Now, there's a reason I bring all this up and that I'm trying to put it in context. And it's that numbers matter. In school, well, when I was in school, the trend was to teach concepts and maybe relationships between the concepts. But numbers will slow you down, right? Don't get bogged down in the numbers. What is it about numbers that automatically lends itself to the idea of getting bogged down? We say don't get bogged down in dates and don't get bogged down in numbers. But why would accuracy and clarity bog us down? And by the way, I do have the bog numbers right here. In the U.S., the southern bogs, otherwise known as Pocosins, there are 
1,400 square miles of undisturbed Pocosins today, according to the EPA. By comparison, there used to be 3,000 square miles that were drained between 1962 and 1979. All right, well, how big is that? For those of you who love things Belgium, it's about an eighth as big as Belgium. But, you know, it's about the size of Rhode Island in a bog. Numbers don't make it less real. Numbers don't confuse. They make it more real. I think about numbers again and again when I think about the populations of countries. So, and here is a World Cup spoiler for those of you like David Plotz who listen to our show and don't want to know who won. The Netherlands are a favorite to win the World Cup. The Netherlands has a population of a little under 17 million. That matters. That's amazing. Two and a half million fewer people live in the Netherlands than live in the state of Florida. I sometimes point out whenever there's a weird item in the news or America is asked to wring its hands over some case of bad parenting somewhere in Ohio or maybe a murder, right? And a murder captures our attention, one murder. And I say, you know, we are a country of 300 million people. But guess what? I've just looked at the population clock. We're actually a country of 318 million people. That was a Netherlands, more than a Netherlands worth of rounding error. Countries, populations, the numbers, fascinating and telling. Switzerland beat Ecuador in the World Cup, which is the smaller country. Guess what? Ecuador has twice as many people as Switzerland. And there's another reason it matters. You always hear about how Sweden is succeeding in some socioeconomic way or the Finnish education miracle. You've heard about education in Finland. Finland has five and a half million residents. A million more people live in Indiana than live in Finland. A Montana's worth of people. So I think these numbers, these actual numbers matter, not just the concepts. The concept says, no, Finland's a country, it's got a flag, it's got a vote in the UN, it's got an education policy, just like the USA. That's the concept. But the numbers tell you, it's not like the USA. It is a lot smaller. It seems more manageable. It just seems different from the USA. The numbers, the difference between numbers, the relationships between numbers, they give a greater meaning to the concept. Anyway, that's my two cents, which in Sweden adjusted for inflation, population and budget would be about a third of a kroner or about the size of Belgium. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcasts, was MVP of the El Pollo Loco Bowl. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, led all tacklers in the My Little Pony Friendship is Magic Bowl. You can subscribe in iTunes and do give us a review while you're there. Point a friend to iTunes, especially if you happen to find out that the friend is a listener in, say, the Slate Daily Podcast feed. Oh, that's great. I listen to the gist, too. But you know what? Subscribe to the gist directly. I hear for some reason it helps them. I'm not sure why. Stitcher, there's a way to listen as well. You can sign up for the email that we'll send you. Go to slate.com slash gist email. You get it in your inbox every day when the gist posts. Facebook.com slash slate gist is a thing, as is our email address. If you want to get to us directly, the gist at slate.com. And remember, check under your seat cushions for a sample of our signature product at the I Can't Believe It's Not Butter Bowl. And thanks for listening.